to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Afghanistan faced such a crisis in 2021 that COVID-19, which paralyzed the rest of the world, seemed a peripheral issue comparatively for Afghan, Afghan people. The Afghan government collapsed in the middle of August and the Taliban took power amid worldwide shock. The irresponsible withdrawal of the US and NATO forces, the abrupt collapse of the Afghan government and the hasty evacuation that followed left tens of thousands of Afghans in imminent danger. The country's economic institutions are on the brink of uh, collapse and now Afghanistan faces a situation where 23 million people, more than half of its population, need food assistance. 8.9 million are facing famine and 1 million children face severe acute malnutrition and could starve this winter. Afghan women are rapidly losing their rights and freedom as the Taliban issues decrease, which curb their rights to education, employment, free movements, and more. Afghan women risk losing all of the gains they have fought for in the, in the past two decades and before. I'm Malale Habibi, Program Officer at the International Civil Society Action Network, also known as ICANN. I'm the recipient of the Krag Institute for International Peace Studies Fellowship, and I'm a Q alumni, completed my master's degree in International Peace Studies at Q School of Global Affairs, University of Notre Dame. Thank you for inviting me to host today's podcast. I'm so looking forward to this conversation about Afghanistan. Today on this episode of the Crowdcast, we will have a conversation about the situation of Afghanistan. We will look at what can be done to mitigate the crisis for its entire population, but specifically for Afghan women who are at the forefront fighting for their rights. I have the pleasure of speaking with two great women. Mahbube Saraj, Executive Director of Afghan Women Skill Development Center, who is joining us from Kabul, Afghanistan, and Sanam Naraki Anderlini, Founder and Executive Director of ICANN and Director of London School of Economics, Center for Women, Peace and Security from Washington, D.C. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Let's start by hearing a little more about the current situation in Afghanistan. Mahbubajan, you've dedicated decades of your life and uh, worked hard to bring a change, especially into the lives of Afghan women. What are you seeing on the ground and how is the situation for ordinary people these days? Thank you for inviting me and thank you for giving me the time to be a part of this podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, the line, actually, I want to start with, the, with, with my work, you know, really two decades of my life or even more has been spent on working with the Afghan women and and the everything that we worked so hard, not only me, but uh, a whole bunch of other women and myself and the international community, I should say at that time also, and a lot of international NGOs and the Afghan NGOs to, to set a certain number of rules and regulations and set up institutions and, and put, put, in other words, steps together one after another in order to make the lives of the of the Afghan women easier, especially the ones that they were in trouble, especially the ones that needed help from the point of view of education, health, political participation, in case of violence against them, access to, to, to justice, you just name it. We all worked on that and we really worked very hard. We set up a whole lot of 
thanks for them, which were positive. We set up all of these institutions and we, we set up rules and regulations and, and all of it step by step. And August 15th, all of that, all of that in front of my eyes disappeared. Now there is none of it in existence. The Ministry of Women's Affairs that was doing a big part of it disappeared. The Human Rights Commission that was doing another part of it disappeared. The, the court system with the lawyers that we had, that they were working on all of these cases for everybody in every area and every, and every aspect of it disappeared. The, the police force that we had in this country to look after situations, to be the ones that will answer questions for the women in need and any point of view and anything, any, any complaints they had or anything, they all disappeared. Right now, we have Afghanistan and whatever is going on. Whatever is going on in Afghanistan is very, very sad, is very difficult, is very disheartening, is very discouraging. And, and it's really a big shame on the face or on the forehead or on the conscience or in the heart of everybody in the world that wanted to bring about some changes in a positive way in this country because none of them worked. None of them were put in such a way that will be institutionalized and that will be become like, like the, the pillars that the country would be built on it or the system. None of them was. Yeah. The democracy that we had, the freedom that we had, everything disappeared. So here we are right now with Afghanistan and with a broken country in every sense of the word, broken. There is no food. There's no medication. There is no heat for anybody. There is no money. There's no work. There's no education for the girls. Yeah. Thank you for sharing the news on the ground. This is really heartbreaking. Sam John, you spearhead the Women's Alliance for Security Leadership, a leading alliance of independent women peace builders around the world. And through ICANN, you have supported women-led organization in Afghanistan since 2012. What are you hearing from your Afghan partners? Thank you, Malalai. Thank you, Mahbuba. And thank you for having me on this podcast as well. I hear what Mahbuba is saying. It is, it's beyond anyone's imagination to understand what has been done to this country and how avoidable it all was. I mean, genuinely avoidable. It did not have to be this way. And I'm not talking about just, you know, should the Americans have pulled out or should NATO have pulled out militarily? I'm talking about the absolute abject failure of the political process and the political discussions. And you have to wonder whether it was willful, whether this was something that some folks here in the United States, in the region, et cetera, actually wanted, because the rest of us were sitting there and watching the train wreck happening. We warned about what a withdrawal of the nature that happened would entail. We, you know, years and years, Afghan women were saying, we want to be in the peace talks. Let us be in Doha as our own representatives. So, so that part of it, I think, is absolutely devastating. And then 
to un- to try and understand what it means to not have a police force, to not have access to your bank accounts, to not be able to sleep at ease at night because you don't know whether someone's going to be knocking on your door. For me, this is also somewhat rem- reminiscent of, of what my own parents and, and relatives went through when the Iranian revolution happened, that it was suddenly kind of a, a, a sort of the ending of one one life. I mean, it's it's literally like your life ends and and you don't know where you are. So it's happened before. But I think in the case of Afghanistan, it is magnitudes worse. And the fact that the Taliban themselves are not ready to govern and don't know how to govern, it, it makes it even more difficult because the country is awash with weapons and and no vision, no vision of, of, of how you run, no sense of responsibility that, OK, now you're in charge. You have to make sure there's water and food and, and people aren't starving and you can't keep, you know, attacking people and, and you know, forcibly displacing or, or killing or all the things that we're beginning to hear about what they're doing to minorities and to women and girls and, and, and so forth and to the young men. So, so it, it's beyond imagination. And, and what makes it worse, as I say, is that it was 100% avoidable. And so this is on the lives of 38 million Afghans now and the generations that are being born and how they have to deal. This is on the conscience of the United States and its NATO allies. One hundred, you know, nobody should be in doubt about that. And whatever the subsequent outcomes of it are in regionally and internationally, because we're beginning to see that mess also. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. In the past five months, we have seen civil society and other ordinary people stepping up and taking on the responsibility to protect citizens. Meanwhile, those with power have deserted the Afghan allies for whom they are responsible. And now the ordinary people are left to pick up the pieces of mess that has been made by international irresponsibility, the Afghan authorities' selfishness, incompetence, and corruption. Now, more than ever, the Afghan women's gains and rights are at stake. Mahbubajan, I'd like to ask you, as someone who is part of these efforts and at the same time deals with the humanitarian crisis on a daily basis in Afghanistan, what do you think could be done differently so that we wouldn't have been in this situation? I think if the takeover or the let go or whatever the word is, because there's one, the takeover of Taliban, and the other one is the is the letting go of the world it did not take place the way it did. Maybe we would have had a different outcome of this. If we had a president that had more of a guts than, than his soft talk or whatever that he was doing, then maybe we would have had a different uh, outcome. If President Biden did not hurry And in a way, without any proper planning, because people, when they started falling from the plane, I do realize, I did realize then that how, without without any any kind of plans, everybody was. I mean, mean, if if these things were were taken care of, and how shall I say, in a human way, not even, not anything else. Nothing, nothing fantastic. Nothing fabulous. Nothing impossible. No, in a human way, in a way of thinking, in a way of thinking, not the short term, but in, in a way of taking into consideration the lives of the human beings that this was going to affect. Then, these things 
would have not happened this way. It would have happened eventually because, you know, the Taliban were going to come, maybe. But things would not be like this. A country that was kind of a, was kind of a let go. I mean, let go. I felt like, for God's sakes, what was the, 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 what was our fault? What did we do wrong? What did we do wrong? As, as allies, as the Afghans, as the men and women of this country, we stood by the world. We stood right next to them. What they thought us, what they wanted us to be, how they wanted us to behave, what they wanted us to say, we did it. all of it. We agreed, we accepted, we did exactly how they wanted us. And the last three years of the, of the Taliban and the agreement with the, with the Taliban, not one American soldier or one international soldier was shot at nor killed. It was all the Afghan soldiers that were getting the brunt of, all of them. And the Afghan people with all of these, these explosions and things happening. So at the end of the day, that, 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 that the world kind of uh, turned against us. Honest to God, it was like, it felt like they turned against us. It's like, why? Why? You did exactly, we did exactly. I'm so sorry if your planning was so bad, if your planning was so ridiculous, if your planning did not take anything into consideration but every one of your pockets, the international community as well as the national, as well as the stupid president of Afghanistan. And I mean it, stupid man. What his two stupid goons that they were both educated in the United States. I mean, these are the ones that made it possible. And this is where we are today. This is where we are. Now, who are we going to who are we going to turn around to? Today we have such a brain drain, Malala John, in this country that even if everything kind of completely becomes possible for all of the Afghans to work, do you know that we don't have anybody? And with the next of the people that are going to be leaving, we will have no one with experience in this land. And the next generation, our young generation, has not reached there because they still haven't opened the, the, the bloody universities for them to go and finish their work. So, so these are these are the things. You know, this is this is the way a country that was on its way to become a nice, wonderful country in the heart of Asia, with all of its wealth, with everything that has underneath, is gone. Yeah. And has to start by putting stone over stone, step by step, to make it happen again. And if it happens or if it doesn't happen, God only knows. I'm 73 years old, and I don't think I'll see it. And you know what that does to me? Sweat. It just breaks my heart into 500 pieces. I'm so sorry. I will not. Yeah. I do not think I will see. I will see the rebel. Yeah, great. I'm so <sighs> sorry to hear that. Yeah, Sam John. In your view, as a peace strategist and someone who has worked in this field for decades, what was the biggest problem of the peace negotiation that left an entire country of 38 million people on this crisis? I'm going to pick up where Mahbuba start, start, stopped and just say, you know, so, so two things. One is that when we think about peace negotiations these days, we are long, long past the very irrational, very unrealistic, I should say, you know, that we, we always talk about realpolitik, but it's very unrealistic. It's notion of elite bargains making 
uh, a difference or make it, having sustainable positive impact. These uh, this idea that that you have peace talks where you have two sides and they come and they hash it out and so forth is as I say it's unrealistic. It's totally idealistic and imaginary in terms of its outcome in terms of presenting sustainable positive outcomes. And frankly, it's lazy. It's really lazy, incompetent, because and, and incom, a sign of incompetence in terms of the diplomatic spaces, because the peace process, whatever those those dialogues are, have to be reflective of the reality of what's going on on the ground. And if you have parties on the ground yes. that are both sides or all sides, I should say, there are multiple negative actors, multiple armed groups, governments that are inherently corrupt, international actors present, and in one way or another, all of these entities are actually targeting the civilians on the ground. Or if they're not targeting civilians, they're not representing the interests of their civilian population. Then you have to question who needs to be there at the table to represent those voices, right? It, and, and I would say, you know, I could take this from Afghanistan to Yemen. If if what we look at, if we look at the, the, the so-called theater of war that, you know, that we don't think about these places as countries and cultures and histories and traditions and so forth, it's what Afghanistan was a quote unquote theater of war. If your theater of war, children, women, ordinary people are the primary targets, civilians are the primary targets, and they're being killed by both sides, you know, the Americans or the allies with the, with, with their drones and so forth. So that's on the government side. And then the, the Taliban on the other side, you need to design a peace process or a dialogue where somebody represents those victims, right? Yes. And this, this is really important. And I call this in part, it's about looking and saying, you know, who has taken on the responsibility to protect? At a, at a global level, the responsibility to protect agenda is perceived as Basically, if a government is killing its own people or there's genocidal, the international community has the right to intervene and the right to intervene inevitably means a military intervention, like, like we saw in Libya in 2012, right? What we see in the space that I work in with women peace builders around the world is that actually there are people who take on the responsibility to protect. They happen to be local. They happen to often be women to begin with. And they're shouldering the burden of responsibility for the protection of women and kids and minorities and the ill and the, and the sick and in displacement camps and in their communities and so forth. They know a lot. They know what's going on and they have a commitment to peace. If we're talking about serious peace talks, those voices should be present. If the Taliban or the Houthis or whoever it is says, oh, we don't talk to women. Okay. They may not want to talk to women. Why isn't the UN? ensuring that there's a delegation of women peace builders present and in and in the conversations and in very taken seriously by the other international actors. Why is it that when we said Afghan women should be there, they were consistently stonewalled. Then the four of them were sort of, you know, kind of shoehorned into the government delegation, which, which is unfair because the government itself is meant to, it had government and opposition and so forth. So the, the four women had to negotiate positions within that existing delegation. Meanwhile, the Taliban had 50% of the room, right? So, or what we have, so it's either shoehorning them into, into some political delegation, or it's saying, okay, you women can have a side show of a side event of a side circus somewhere else 
and maybe we'll come and talk to you for half an hour. This is incredibly flawed. And many people will say, oh, why do you talk about women? I talk about women because in the 25 years I've been in this space globally where, where conflict has arisen, I've seen women emerge as peacemakers and peace builders running to the problem. Not all women because it's dangerous work, but always a cohort of women emerge, young, old, educated, you know, sophisticated kind of political figures or very local kind of going with their heart. We've seen, but they emerge as peace builders. So I talk about women. In the case of Afghanistan, I think you could extend it and say there are lots of young people that are active as peacemakers as well. Where were they? Why didn't we have them? And 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 the the again the irres- irresponsibility factor is that there was never a discussion about civilian protection. The three years, as you said, for three years, no American soldier or I think any any of the Allied soldiers were ever killed. Right. So the Taliban had enough command and control to make sure that not one single Western soldier was targeted in three years. Where in all of the dialogues and negotiations that they had, did they bring up, and I'm saying, you know, when it was the U.S. talking to the, to the, to the Taliban directly, and then, and then when we had the intra-Afghan intra talks that were supposedly hosted, where, was, where in the agenda items did they say, stop targeting civilian spots? They targeted, in the middle of negotiations, they targeted a women's clinic. They targeted schools. They were killing civilians. Who at that table was representing the voices of those people? And if you don't have someone there, you better. We need to have someone. And that's that that onus is on the international community. So that's that's one aspect. This, this is one aspect of the peace process. Going back to your point about, about what's happened since then, you know, as a, as an as an NGO that works with local organizations. We never claim to be humanitarian actors. That's this is not new. This is this is not my expertise. But in the last five, six months, we have been involved in looking into how do you get planes, how do you fly people out, how do you get visas, how do you get people out into transit spots and, and evacuation. We're doing the work of governments. We're doing the work of the UN. It's not fair. Because if, if you want me to do the work, then give me the right to also process people and give them visas. It's, it's, it is profoneness unfair and unethical of our governments to put the burden on all of us and yet, again, give us all the responsibility and all the risk and none of the power and ability to actually make a decision about the lives of others. We're, we're, you know, there's a, there was that film, Sophie's Choice, going back about about uh, a Jewish mother having to being forced to choose between which of her children she would keep alive in in a concentration camp during World War II. It was it's called Sophie's Choice. This is what this is the game we we are being forced to play. Oh, we have three spots here, and we might be able to give a visa visa there. I am not the person to decide who gets to come out and who gets to to to, to stay. This this is this is deeply deeply unethical, right? And and so again that there's that question of abrogation of responsibility. So the most powerful entities, institutions, the most powerful leaders in the world today have abrogated every aspect of responsibility they have towards their citizens and their civil and the civilian populations around the world. This this is the reality that we're living. In. Yeah. Thank you, Sanandong, for sharing your honest thoughts. Yeah. 
I would like to come back to you, Mahbubajan. We are hearing that some negotiations are taking place in Doha and elsewhere between the Taliban, U.S., and other governments, as Sanamjan also already depicted. We have also seen meetings between the Taliban and EU and U.S. delegations here and there without women's presence and in rooms full of men. How can we assure that the Taliban install an inclusive, install an inclusive government, respect the rights of uh, minorities, women and girls, and actually provide equal access to education and employment? You know, on this one, first of all, I just wanted to just say thank you to, to Sanam John for that. That was really wonderful. Thank you. Because you spoke a part of my heart here. In order for me to get to that, I wanna I wanna draw another picture for you, because because things are not really really the way uh, a whole lot of things are not really the way the world is kind of a projecting or showing it for us or for them or for whoever to see it. Reality is somewhere else, and finally, that reality is that. Um, that I've really, you know, finally I've come to realization and I've come to, to really talk about it now and I've come to look at it from that point of view. This has nothing to do with the Afghan people. This has not, this is not in the hands of the Taliban. None of these decisions for the betterment of Afghanistan, for the women of Afghanistan, for the education, for the health, for the money to be released, for all of that, none of them or in the hands of the Afghans, nor the Taliban. It's in the hands of the international community. They have to decide which one of these and how important. Because the, the whole question of human rights, women's rights, rights to education, humanitarian help in general, this is not something that really interests the world, I mean. And if we think that this is what the governments of the world think about, we are wrong. This is what the people of the world think about, not the governments. So because of that, it's again the people of the world that they have to make their governments, push them and say, come on, guys. We have voted us democratic countries. We have all brought you to where you are. All right, then why don't you just be honest for once? And really, really say, what is it that you want? And really do what you can do in order to bring peace in a part of the world that you have taken the peace away from. Because of that, there is another way of really looking at this whole thing. And I hope, and I hope that we'll get to that point and really see it that way. And my only hope right now from the world is not their governments, Malalai John, at all. As the people and especially the women. Yes. Now is the time for us women to actually move and make it happen. We have to make the realities of the world happen as they are, not as what they want us to believe that is. Please. Patriarchies of the world have ruined things. They really have. In my country, they have destroyed it. Yeah, thank you. So Afghan women have already started that and we've seen a lot of bold uh, pictures and movements in the media. I will get back to it soon. But I think it's the time for a global women's movement. Yeah, 
Thank you. Salam John, how can we encourage the right safety and health of women and girls in related to the humanitarian aid and more generally actually in moving forward with the new de facto government in Afghanistan? I, th- I think there are a couple of dimensions to this. I think one is that in terms of the humanitarian aid going in, it's really important and, and you know, it's not just what they say. It's really about looking and seeing what how they're doing it and whether they're putting things into practice. But the aid going in, what's their strategy and, and operational plans to ensuring that women, widows, people that really don't have access are getting access to the food, right? That's And, and it's not enough to say, oh, yes, you know, women first come and they get the bags of rice or, or oil and so forth. It, I don't think that that's sufficient. I, th- I think we really need to be understanding who is not getting it. And then also what's the safety and security for, for people, right? Once they have it, right? That, that already can, can cause additional insecurity. If you're a, if you're a widow and you, and, and you, or a young family and you have the food, how do you know that the Taliban isn't coming next door and grabbing it or, or what's happening? We've heard about domestic violence in, in households. So there are all sorts of issues around kind of genuine operational work. And to do that effectively, the best allies that you have and the best experts, frankly, are the women on the ground, are people like Mahbuba and others who are still there, who have had experience, who, who are trusted, who know how to navigate. And, and whether it's in Kabul or in the provinces, people are still there, right? Rem- think about all the school teachers that have been stuck at home. They know people, they know the families, they know the girls. So there, there are ways in which the, the humanitarian delivery of food should be inclusive of women as as actors in delivering, as actors in shaping how you do it safely, as actors in ensuring that that there's a feedback loop and in terms of what is what the needs are and so forth. That that's one side. I don't. We've given lots of advocacy guidance on this. We've written a lot about this to 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 the major bilateral donors around how to do this. I don't know whether they're doing it properly, right? And and that's and that's the real issue because because. You know, a lot of the governments, a lot of the UN agencies will say all the politically correct things. But as a colleague of mine was a former senior government official in Europe, said they'll say it that they say the politically correct things, but they're doing exactly the opposite. Right. So so this this is something we need to share. We need to understand and see. That's one side of it. Then again, I come back to the politics. We've lurched. I mean, we the international community has lurched from Afghanistan being a war and just like trying to deal deal with it militarily with a little bit of a you know side dish of oh we'll do a little bit of nation building and a little you know lots of contractors coming in and trying to make money and meanwhile ordinary afghans making doing the best that they can and and I and I'll come back to that point in a second but we went from from it being a military military operation in its framing and the politics as a sideshow and the 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 nation building as a sideshow to now a humanitarian thing And again, the politics is a sideshow. You cannot come up with a sustainable solution to the problem unless we put the political vision front and center. The real question for me is, what does the world want Afghanistan to be in the next five years? What, where do yes. we want it to be? Do you want it to be a country emptied out of all of its people? Do we want it to be the hotbed of violence and terrorism and everything else that's going on? Or do we want it to be a country which It was until August, a country where 62% of the population was under the age of uh, 25, 62 under the age of 20. Imagine what percentage is under the age of 30. Over 40% were the, under the age of 14. 
And basically, people were striving to have lives like the rest of us have. They wanted their kids to go to school. They wanted to have decent jobs. They wanted to have dignity. They wanted to have clean, clean, you know, fields and 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 live their lives. So you had that that vision. If we want Afghanistan to be a peaceful country, what's it going to take? If that's where we want to be in five years' time, what does it mean in three years' time? And where do we need to be now? Because if we leave it as it is, anybody who is in their right mind and who has two two cents to rub together or any sense of survival is going to be walking out of that country. Yes, sooner or later. Any of us. I mean, you know, and and this this is something that 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 the international, you know, the diplomats that are talking here and there really it's really important that that they that they put this on the table. If Pakistan, the Pakistani prime minister says that oh, it's the culture of Afghanistan for girls not to go to school, which is a complete fallacy by the way. But if he says that or if this is their culture, the question has to be Mr. Khan, would you want your daughter, your wife, your sister to be living there? Would you know if if we think that Afghanistan under the Taliban is okay for minorities and for for young boys and for young girls and then why don't why don't people send their own kids there? Nobody nobody really believes that the Taliban rule yeah. is humane. Right. But but again, let's let's say that nobody let's say that the world no longer cares about Afghanistan per se. That's just you know being very realistic and cold, cold, cold-eyed and cold-hearted. Again, look at it. What have we, what's the signaling that we've given and done with other violent extremist movements around the world. The Taliban was the butt of the joke for 20 years, and now they've become the heroes. And we, our governments, have enabled that. Because the signal, the message is, you wait long enough, you're violent long enough, the world will move away. Yeah. So, and, and all the things we say about democracy, about people going to elections, about human rights, we shot our, I mean, the international community has shot itself in the foot by not abiding by those very principles and that reality. And again, Afghan people have paid the price because they tried, they've been at the forefront of the fight for democracy, the fight for human rights. These are not Western values. These are universal desires and, and demands. And, and that, that sent, and it's, it's about the essence of human dignity. Thank you, Sanjo. Thank you so much. Going back to your point, to your previous point, Mahbubajan, we have seen that since the Taliban took control, a strong and bold activism from women inside of Afghanistan. They have been protesting and raising their voices despite insecurity, threats, human rights offenses, forced disappearances and killings. Would you like to speak a little bit about how you see the impact of this activism in short and long term on Afghan women? I see the impact of that activism, Malalajan. That right now, thank God, you and Sanam John and Croc Institute would like to make a podcast and want to find out about what's going on in the lives of the Afghan women. If it wasn't for what is happening in Afghanistan right now with the women of Afghanistan, with the continuation of raising our voices with the help of some of you on the ground, that you are there, as, as, as Sanam put it, I mean, which has absolutely not her job to become a humanitarian at this point, or you, I mean, the nights that you have worked on, on the things that you did not even think that you were going to be working on, which was to get people's information and try to find them a home somewhere in the world. If all of this, you know, th- th- this, is, this is why it is working. This is why it's important. This is why it should be alive. 
And this is why we should stand behind these women. We should make sure that we give them our support. We should make sure that we do give them our help and our our support, education that is needed, and, and and the means to become the new generation of the voices of the women of Afghanistan, the new civil society of Afghanistan, and the new and and the people that will be actually running this country will be will be taking over it taking over this land doing the job as they are supposed to be this is this is why it's so important i am behind these ladies 100% most of them are so young malalejon they are so young it's not even i mean it's unbelievably young women they are and I always talk to them when they say they are going to go and do, do the demonstrations. And they always talk to me. They always talk to me before doing that. Because them and I, we have this disagreement that one day I'm going to be in those, in those demonstrations because for me right now, walking and being you know, outside and all of that is not an easy thing to do. But I will do it one day when the day is Afghanistan needs it for all of the women and there should be at least five to 10,000 women behind us or next to us in that day, then I will get on the streets of Kabul and we will walk it and we will demonstrate. But until then, all of my young sisters and and my young daughters are going to do it. And they're doing it. They're doing it. We're taking their own lives in their hands. Every single time that they go out, honestly, I cannot tell you, Malala John, how, how, how worried I get, how upset I am, how, how uh, you know, stressed I get. Yeah. Because I know, you know, until they come back home, you know, until I see on the, I get on the site and I see everybody's okay, you know, it's just, it just takes my breath away. Because mm-hmm. here I am as their elder. Here I am as the, as the, as the person that has been in this, in this, in this struggle for years and years. And trying to give them some kind of some kind of, of, a, of a direction or which way to go, how to do it, whether they should or whether they should. But then again, I've always told them that it is in their hands and they should be doing what they think is right. And they are there with their beautiful resilience, with their beautiful acceptance of all the, 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 the most horrible thing that is happening in their lives. They, they are there. That's, that's the beauty of the Afghan people and the Afghan women especially. Yes. God has given them a resilience which is which is beyond beyond imagination. And they're there and they're doing it. And I want to be there. And I want to and I want the world to protect them. I want the world to, to, to cheer them. I want the world to be right next to them and really push them and really give them all the support that they need. So that so that they could keep this voice, this struggle, this whole reason, give the world a reason be the voice of the new generations of reasons to stay alive, to not to be used and abused by, by powerful countries of the world, to be, to, be, to be allowed to do their job. And their job is to live, is to live, to live. Yeah, they have been, yeah, thank you. They have been amazing, absolutely amazing. Today morning, I saw a video on social media where um, a bunch of young, very young Afghan girls were gathering in uh, Kabul University and they were chanting that we do not hold gun 
we have flowers in hand. And this way of uh, non-violent approaching is amazing, absolutely amazing. I'm so proud of them. Yeah. Sanam John, you're also coming from the same background relating to Iranian women's activism for their rights. How do you see the similarities, the lessons learned and the path ahead uh, for Afghan women? If you could share a little bit on that, please. Sure, and, I, and I'll take it from two, again, I'll, I'll look at it from two angles. So, so, you know, what we've seen in Iran over the last 40 years was that this, the Islamic regime, I mean, these, the, the Islamists, if you want, when they, when they were organizing as part of the revolution, the 1978 revolution, they tapped into the discontent of women. And they promised them that, oh, you know, when we have an Islamic society, it will be, yeah, you will have your rights, right? And that that what is happening, you know, this in the 70s and so forth, they were saying this is West toxification. That was a term that they used, West toxification. This is immorality. But when, when we have an Islamic society, it's going to be moral and you're going to have your rights. Well, the first thing that they did when they came to power, so that this way they mobilized a lot of traditional, more religious women and so forth, and younger people who were against the, the autocracy of, of, of the Shah and, and, you know, wanted something different. The first thing they did when they came to power was to take away the rights. They suspended all the personal status laws that we had that gave women the right to, to their you know, children and divorce, the right to divorce, all, all sorts of things. They imposed Sharia law, which basically is their random interpretation, and I mean random interpretation, of, of Sharia, because you can, you can interpret it in very egalitarian ways, but you can also interpret it in very non-egalitarian ways, right? So they did all that. And then they came along and they wanted to impose the hijab. And my mother actually was, was involved in the protest. There were massive protests. A hundred thousand women were in the streets of Tehran over months and months and months. And, and the slogan of the Islamists became Rusari ya tusari, which basically means either you cover your head with a scarf or we whack you over the head, right? And that became the dominant kind of dialogue that Iranian women have had with the state over the last 40 years that, you know, there's pressure, they use the hijab, they use other ways of trying to squeeze women out. They, you know, at one point they didn't want them in universities and then people protested. Ironically, the Iran-Iraq war was a moment of empowerment again for, for, for more traditional women because their husbands were dying in the war and they wanted their um, inheritance and they wanted the, the, the sort of packages of, you know, pensions and so forth. And 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 that and they fought to make it inflation tied to inflation. So it was their own constituency that ended up that has ended up in, in a way being the voice of dissent within. So what we've seen over the last forty years is that they've educated people. The Islamic Revolution had a Islamist side and a socialist side. So so education was always there. They made it integral, you know, segregated schools and so forth. But what what we see is that you have a very educated population. And again, the demand for justice and dignity and human rights is in our DNA. It's in our brains. Social science, cognitive science has now proven that justice and fairness is hardwired in us. So, you, you know, one generation comes, you whack it over the head, they recede. The next one comes. The demands continue. It's the same in Palestine. People, you know, however much you push, it is human nature to resist and want something different. Right. And, and justice and fairness is part of that. In Iran, the way that it's worked is that they haven't been able to change, you know, get rid of the government, obviously, but it's been evolving. It's been mm -hmm. it's been a process of evolution. 
And a lot of people, you know, you know, can all get frustrated and, and, and frankly, sanctions and war and the threat of war have only strengthened the hands of the hardliners in Iran. But if you look at it from a public level, the public, very much women led, very much and it's a young, same young population. They've pushed and pushed and pushed. So, so now the hijab, if you don't make a big deal out of insisting that it should be taken off entirely, it's a scarf that sits at the back of your head and, you know, pretty short and as opposed to what it used to be. If you look at where women are in public life, their work, they have positions, they're in business, they're in education and so forth. Legally, they still don't have equal rights. Legally, we still don't have equal rights, right? So when I go back or when my father passed away, you know, whether it's it's about going to court or whether it's about signing documents and so forth, you're still half a person, right? It, it's these all their ways of interpreting, but it's been a slow process of pushing and the culture and society are ahead of the government. This, this is this is this is one strategy. So, so and and this is the thing that can Afghanistan do it that way? Will there be enough st- basic stability to allow the cultural push to shift the demands um, from from these guys? That's one thing. Now we can also look at other places. We, and and as as Mahbubujan was talking about about you know being on the streets, I was reminded of the Liberian women who had fourteen years of war and they. Kept, you know, one generation went forward. They got a, they got a peace agreement. They got a transition. Another warlord comes to power. The war breaks up again, breaks out again, and the Liberian women at some point had had enough of of all of the violence and all of the rape and all of the kidnappings and so forth that they just put on white outfits and they went and they sat outside the presidential kind of uh, uh, road. And protested and protested and protested, and they had good acts. They had friends inside the system and outside, and basically started to push to say we've had enough. And and that and and it was and it was really as as Mapuba said, it was the end of the tether, because it's it's like what else do you have to lose when when they when when women are being raped and and children are being slaughtered and you have no food, what else do you have? Mm-hmm. And and that that for them it was it was. Christian and Muslim women across the different uh, ethnic, you know, tribal differences and so forth that came together and, and pushed. But it was a very strategic move. They, they learned from the elders. They had access to, to, to people within the system and, and, and so forth. And they mobilized on a mass movement altogether and, and persisted. And, and so, the, the, you know, we have a lot of examples from different parts of the world on how this is done and what, what to do. But I think that Afghan women have you know, A, you've had years and years of your own protests and resistance. And honestly, I think that the, the solution to Afghanistan is going to come from women. I, 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 you know, it's a huge burden to put on them. But I think that that it's the Afghan women who still have the humanity to say, what is the Talib thinking? Can we, can we, they are boys as well, let's say, right? There is still that capacity to say, we have to weave and fold people in. And, and my, again, I put my, I put the attention on the international community and the challenge to them. Why do you not have Afghan women in Doha? Where are they? There are the police, there are the judges, there are the activists, there are the journalists, there are the doctors. They need to be their own delegation in Doha talking to the international community to shape what, how the world wants to t- uh, treat and how the world is going to engage with Afghanistan moving forward. The women should lead that from internationally and, uh, and on the ground. Yeah, great. Thanks both for sharing your thoughts. Many Afghan women leaders have been evacuated or left the country amid the recent crisis. Uh, Mahbubujan, I would like to come back again to you. How do you think uh, they could best mobilize and amplify the voices of women inside Afghanistan? Again, it goes back to 
which was, you know, every single time a leader in Afghanistan was doing something was or was being at the stage and was really saying something for the benefits of the Afghan woman, I used to tell them, please do not do not recreate yourself. Please don't do this for your benefit personally. Do it for the benefit of the woman of Afghanistan. So this this demand of mine uh, it was the it was kind of a, became a, a thing amongst all of us that you know Mabu was always asking this, but but I was very serious because I I knew the difference between when you do it that way or when you do it the other way. When you do it for the women of Afghanistan has one kind of impact. When you do it to to for yourself to make yourself known and yourself and give that that you know create yourself and give it space for yourself and the government that's an entirely different ballgame. So what I really want him to do even now is the same thing. Do it for the sake of the Afghan women. Do it for them. Because if you do it for yourselves to get, you know, some kind of benefits from it for yourselves outside of Afghanistan, a name, a fame, whatever you want to call it, then you can't do it really. Then there's no point. Then we won't allow you. The people inside Afghanistan will not allow you. You are going to be, they are going to be seeing you know, some a kind of a resentment and stopping them that you would not believe. That I can promise you. But if they do it for the benefit of the Afghan woman, for the be the voice of Afghan woman, they can do so much. There are so many possibilities because they are there. They have access. They can raise their voice. They can demonstrate. They can do anything that they want for the benefit of the Afghan woman. If they want to do that, then go right ahead and do it. But please, yeah. don't do it for your for your benefit only. Because if you do it for your benefit, I will be the first one in Afghanistan, if I'm still around, to tell everybody here, stand stand in front of those women and don't let them use you. And use your name and use your, your, your misery and use what you are going through in order to make something for themselves. So that's where the difference is. If there is no, this, they know this difference, I wish them all the power. And I hope that they work any which way they know. If this is not what they want to do, then we'll stop them. That's all there is to yeah. Thank you. Again, Sanam John, I would love to refer to your experience as an Iranian who has lived outside of Iran and have been doing activism. How best the cleavages and gaps between uh, those inside and outside of Afghanistan can be filled so that they join efforts and strengthen their voices? Thank you. This is a really, really tough and very hard space yeah, to navigate. So so here here are just a few thoughts that I would I would say. So one is that and I and again these have been my own kind of guiding principles if if you want. Both with my Iranian colleagues also but also globally working globally because of where I sit and and the access that I have and you know the the, the comparative advantage and comparative limitations that I have. I genuinely believe that when you end up being outside of your own country or context, it's really important to anchor and echo and really listen to what people on the ground are saying and what the differences are and and being their voice right this is really important we've seen this with palestinians we've seen this with the iranians we see this all the time with with diaspora populations that actually what's going on on the ground is a different reality to what people understand or hear or or remember of their own experiences right and and very often people on the ground have to make do they have to make compromises they have to they ha- they find very clever ways to navigate to carry on 
when you're sitting outside and you don't live with the constraints that, that the security constraints and other things that that they're that your local counterparts are dealing with, it's really important to hear from them what they want you to do. You still matter, right? It's not that you you become irrelevant. In fact, you you in many ways you matter more because now you have access to places and people that they may not have access to, and you have a kind of a space in your mind. I don't want to say peace of mind, but you have, a, if, if, if you've managed to get out of Afghanistan or Iran right now or Yemen or wherever it is, and you're living abroad, the heartache of being away from your country is unfathomable. And, and it's, and we, you know, we can discuss what that means, that that sense of unbelonging or having to set new routes, right? But you're also safe from the kind of insecurity and the threats that people inside the country are still living with, right? And that is a privilege and you should recognize what that gives you and and the ability to be able to lift yourself up and say, okay, what's happening there? What's happening there? I'm hearing these stories. How can I learn from this? How can I bring it back? But ultimately to be the voice and, 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 and your integrity is gonna be grounded and based on how much you are representing and, and, and supporting the voices in, on the inside. So, so going back to what Mahbub was saying, you know, if you're doing this for yourself or you're trying to create a, your vision of what is the right thing, it that's a, to me it's a red flag and and it and it's a real concern. And we have, you know, I, I can give you examples of of Iranian women who have done that. And I can't, you know, on the, on a personal level, I can't fault them. There are people who've left and and they need to make a living or they need to kind of, you know, have a life here in in in, in the West. But to to make a living off the back of your local partners um, or your local counterparts. And not and and it's, and and to do it without being rep- their representative or or being true to them is is to me a, a big concern. The second point that I'd like to make is that it's really important as we look at people and as what's going on in these processes and so forth to operate on the principle of giving each other the benefit of the doubt, because there is such a fight to get into this room and that room and that this discussion and that panel that people lose sight of the fact that actually. The, the hill that we need to climb is not over ourselves, it's another hill, right? And so if one person has made it, trust that that person is gonna be saying the key things that need yes. to be said. And unfortunately, whether, it, I don't know, I mean, I see it in the women's space, but maybe in other spaces as well, when you don't have that access, it's so easy to fall into the trap of being suspicious of the other one or saying why her and not me and so forth. And that is the biggest damage that the, that the women's movement can make uh, to, can do to itself, to start to, to mistrust, to be suspicious, to, to undermine, to undercut each other when, when people are, are, are in these spaces. I'd rather have three people. Let's say there was a Doha talks. I would rather have a delegation of three inside where the negotiations are happening than having 150 outside because nobody could decide who the three that should be going inside, right? mm-hmm. or they they disagreed on the three that were selected in in whatever ways. I, this this is the thing that we have to learn how to trust and give each other the benefit of the doubt. And those who end up in these spaces must always remember to refer back and have a feedback loop, and be the voice um, for those that are inside and and don't have a chance to have have their own voice. Yeah. Yeah, great. Thanks for sharing your experience and thoughts. So, John, any final comments or reflection? Final comments. 
I wish and I hope that the people of the world will keep on doing things like this. This kind of a podcast, or they are they are very important, and especially you know when they are uh, disseminated and they are kind of shared and they are all of that with the audiences. The audiences that are hearing this are very important. Yeah. They have to know what is really going on and their knowing makes a difference because they are the ones that one day, sooner or later, they're going to be involved in a lot of decision-making parts of their countries. And it's good to know, you know, what this what is really happening in the world. I I I I'm hoping and I'm so grateful and thankful to all of you and the ones that they have been the instruments to keep the voices of the Afghan women alive and loud and clear and being broadcasted all over and kind of, you know, and for the world that is listening to it, hopefully. It is important. We should do that. This is, this is, we are the revolution, believe it or not. The women are the revolution. And, and we are, and we are going to make a difference. I can promise you that. Sooner or later, this is going to be something will come out of this. Yeah. And we are going to make a difference. Yeah. So that is why I can't be pessimistic. I am optimistic. I have to be optimistic because otherwise that pessimism will stop me from doing anything and that I should and I can. So please be right next to us. Please be in front of us, behind us, on top of our head, in our arms, wherever you want to be. Just be. Just be there and be next to us. This is our movement. This is the movement of the women of the world. Thanks to you, actually. And just for reflecting on what you've already said, Afghanistan becoming the dramatic story of the past is the worst thing that could happen to its people and specifically to its women. Yeah. Salam John, you any final comments or reflection or anything you want to share as the last word? Thank you. Well, my hope in 2022 is to see Mahbuba in Kabul and give her a big hug. So that's my... Will you invite me too? Yeah, uh, that's where we're coming. We're coming. I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to do that. But I, I think that that's really important. And And what I would say, I mean, you know, again, we have different audiences for this podcast, but what I would say to people in the U.S. is that they can make a huge difference by making sure that Afghanistan and these issues that we're talking about, Afghan women, and broadly this women's movement for peace around the world, Yemen, Syria, Colombia, all these places where we have partners. If we have Af- if we have the people in the U.S. raising their voices in support of this, writing to their congressmen, reminding them that we have something called the Women, Peace, and Security Act that it by law says the United States must include women peace builders in peace processes and must ensure the protection of women, it will make a difference. They, that can make a difference, right? If, 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 you're, if you're the constituency and you're writing to your congressmen and your senators and asking them these questions and bringing it up, they can also contribute. So, so I, th- I think that's, that's, a, that's a really important message that, that we can share with, with the public here and the, on the audiences yeah, here in the United States as well. And then as, as uh, Mahbuba said, I, th- I think that, you know, we're at an inflection point in the world that, that basically the autocracies and the, and the dictatorships are, are on the rise and human rights and, and all the values that we've fought for are, are, are on the demise. The answer to that, the, the counter 
point to that is actually the feminist peace movements and the feminist movements. And people often don't realize that when we say feminist, we don't just mean we want the world to be a better place for women. We also mean it for men and boys, because I think that again, if whether it's whether we're looking at Afghanistan or, or the United States, there are there is an elite minority that is harnessing and co-opting the lives of young men, arming them to go out and fight and kill and maim and be be killed and be maimed and damaged. And to what end? You know, the soldiers here in the United States, they're not benefiting from all of the trillions that were spent in Afghanistan or the billions that go to the weapons companies or the contractors and so forth. They're, they're living on their pensions and, and have come back with a lot of trauma. We should, the feminist perspectives on these issues is actually for men as well as women. And it's an anti-military, very humanistic approach to domestic affairs and international affairs. And, and so we want the men to join us as well, because this is, this trajectory that we've been on certainly in the last 20 years is is a disaster for this country and it's certainly a disaster for the world yeah thank you well thanks to each one of you for joining us for the conversation today and sharing with us your reflection and ideas thank you very much thank you thank you you've been listening to the Crockcast. Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the Crockcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Kroc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.